thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. Well, let's see. F4, check. F5, check. F14, 15, 16, 18, yep. F22 and F35, double check. What's left? What could we possibly talk about here on episode 86? Hmm. Strap in for the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet radio show that explores the fascinating world of air combat, the aircraft, the weapon systems, and most importantly, the people. Now, here's your host, retired U.S. Navy fighter pilot, Vincent Aiello. Welcome to the show. I am your host, Jello, and this is episode 86. And that's right. Today we're talking about the North American F-86 Sabre. Yeah, see what I did there? Brilliant. I know. I'm so smart. Anyway, we'll get to the interview and we'll have a guest co-host join us in just a bit. But as usual, first some quick announcements and a few listener questions. Well, I hope everyone's summer is going well, or winter, for those of you down under. We're doing pretty well here. I just spent a week up with my folks in Southern Oregon again. Had a great time up there. Did some rafting and swimming, fishing. Had just a really great time, and that's what summer's all about. So I hope you're enjoying your time as well. But I guess my big news, of course, those of you who are on Patreon already know this. I received a not unexpected letter from my airline saying that if things do not drastically improve in the meantime, I will most likely be furloughed effective October 1st. Well, I mean, no one likes change. And, you know, this is kind of a bummer. But on the other hand, I'm actually pretty enthusiastic for the new opportunities. I'm probably going to make a full-time go of podcasting. And that's because of the generosity of the 450 folks who support us on Patreon. Plus, we've had some advertising and sponsors and different initiatives. So this is going to become a full-time gig for me. And I hope being unemployed effectively doesn't affect the show at all. If anything, it should make it hopefully better. But we'll see. And uh, who knows when they'll call me back. I was only about 500 numbers away in seniority from a job in San Diego. Actually, I live in San Diego, but in New York. And I'm not crazy about commuting all the way across the country, but, you know, take what you get. So, yeah, we'll see what happens. Now, those patrons I was telling you about, besides supporting the show, they get exclusive privileges and awesome extra content, including I had just the other day a two-hour discussion with Cesar Rodriguez. If you're a military aviation enthusiast, you may have heard of him. He is uh, the real only man to down three enemy airplanes in the last 40 years, like Ed Harris's character told Maverick in the first Top Gun trailer. Yeah, no kidding. He's got two kills from an F-15 in Desert Storm and another one in Allied Force eight years later. And he came on what we call Happy Hour, which is just a casual discussion. And we sat and talked about flying and lessons and what it's like when you get a kill, frankly, and how you react to that and what people expect. And it was just a really cool time. So if you're interested in that, head on over to patreon.com and look for that. It's, uh, forget, I think at the 10 or $15 level, but not only do you get that access, you help support the show and that's going to be more and more important going forward. So thanks in advance for that. In other announcements, we have a new article posted to the musing section of our website this past week. It's called The Sea Wings Legacy, and it was written by our guest writer, Edward Chang. He's been mentioned on the show a time or two. He lives here in San Diego. Now, the uh, Sea Wings Legacy article, it looks at the transformation of naval aviation in the decade between the end of the Cold War and 9-11. So go check that out. And on our Facebook page, there's been quite a few comments on that post as well. So take a look for that. 
And lastly, we want to thank our partner Thrustmaster for sponsoring this episode and the show in general for the last month. This year is Thrustmaster's 30th anniversary, as well as the 10-year anniversary of their Warthog HOTAS system. Now, Thrustmaster is dedicated to providing the most realistic flight simulation gear, and the team members here at BVR Productions are big fans, including me. I did a stick review of their F-18 HOTAS stick some time ago. You can go check that out on our YouTube channel. And also, I'm told they have a line of civil aviation systems coming soon. So that's really cool. Thanks for your support, Thrustmaster. And we look forward to what the next 30 years have in store for you. All right, why don't we take a few questions? I've got a couple emails and a couple phone calls today. The first is an email from Lachlan in Australia. And he says, could a fighter section or squadron be tasked to escort a rescue helicopter to rescue a downed pilot in contested airspace? If so, what sort of planning considerations come to mind? Well, yes, absolutely, Lachlan. This happened all the time in Vietnam when the A-1 Sky Raiders escorted the H-53s to pick up downed aircrew. And part of the reason they used that aircraft was not only was it relatively slow, which is good for the coordination with a helicopter, but it was heavily armed and armored so it could get in there and slug it out if necessary. And that's absolutely what is required to do so. It's the coordination. So you have the route that the rescue assets will be following, the speeds, the weather, the frequencies, the extraction itself, what are the threats. And so there's just a lot that goes into it. But at Fallon, where air wings go prior to deploying on carriers, they go through a workup process where their missions get harder and harder. And that is one of the missions is CSAR. And they'll take a handful of the air wing folks and make them go out and do those missions. So yes, absolutely. All right, next, let's take a phone call. Good morning, Jello. My name is Brendan Thomas. I'm from Connecticut. Civilian listener of the pod, absolutely love it. Uh, I've always wanted to be a fighter pilot, and my grandfather flew B-29s in World War II for the Navy. I started out as a little cadet in Civil Air Patrol at 13, but, you know, life has its way of changing your plans, and now I'm a firefighter paramedic in Connecticut. My question, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe you were a part of a PBS documentary on pitching decks. And I say that because I heard your call sign. And unless there's another Navy pilot out there with the call sign Jello, then I think it was you. So one of the pilots, and maybe it was a skipper, you know, kept talking about how more than five pilots kept having a bolter. He kept having to put recovery tankers up to, because they needed gas. My question is, what happened for whatever reason if the pilot can't put wheels down on the boat, he can't hook the three-wire, what happens when the recovery tankers need gas? Does the number of attempts affect the pilot in any way, affect his not ability to fly, but or how much he goes up and flies? I'm just curious to hear it from a pilot, what it actually feels like coming at the back of a carrier and pitching decks at night, You know, not the PBS version of what it feels like. So thank you for your service. Absolutely love the pod. Please keep them coming. Thanks. All right. Thanks very much, Brendan. Yes, the 2008 PBS Carrier Series was recorded during my 2005 deployment with Airwing 11 on USS Nimitz. I was out there, and the CO you're talking about, I believe, was Commander Dave Fravor. He was our Episode 35 guest on UFOs about a year and a half ago. To answer your questions, when a pilot cannot get aboard, fixed-wing pilot trying to land on the carrier? Well, here's your options in easiest to hardest, and that is you keep trying, you go aerial refuel, you divert somewhere else, and then if all that fails, you pull alongside and eject. And that's not ideal, of course, but if you don't have any other options, that's basically the last thing you can do. I suppose you could also throw a barricade recovery in there somewhere as an option, but the thing about a barricade is it's even harder than a regular landing. You've got to be exactly on. So... Yeah, you'll see that occasionally, especially back in the Vietnam and maybe in Korea era, but uh, not so much lately. Now, for the recovery tanker, it's the same options. And that is exactly why you saw Commander Fravor in that series bump out Cone, which was one of the brand new pilots, because 
Commander Fravor knew that it was going to get very sporty that night. And in fact, it did. What normally takes about 15 or 20 minutes to recover 12 or so aircraft ended up taking well over an hour. And I myself was out there that night. I had three passes, as I've mentioned before on this show. The first pass, I missed the whole carrier, never even wheels touched the deck. Second time, I touched down, but it was a bolter. And the third time, I grabbed the four-wire on the fly. And what was it actually like? It sucked. It was the scariest thing I've ever done in my life. I don't ever want to think about doing it or doing it again. And I'm amazed that guys like Farva and Grand, who have been on the show, are out doing it right now. God bless them. And I'm glad I'm not them. (laughs) Enough said. All right. Email from Brandon. He says, I was drawn to aviation first by the toys that lined the shelves at the time. Why don't these toys exist today? Does the Navy and Air Force have a hand in encouraging the toy market in order to influence youngsters to be interested in aviation? Well, Brandon, I highly doubt that. My guess is that society and kids have changed. Now they have iPhones and iPads and other smart devices in their hands and good old-fashioned toys just maybe aren't as exciting as they used to be when we were kids. But no, I highly doubt the toy companies are talking to the Navy and the Air Force. I mean, they might have to get permission to use the terminology and the shapes and especially from the manufacturers who make the aircraft. But my guess is if they're not selling, they're pulling them off the shelves and going with something else. All right, next, let's take another phone call. Hey, what's up, Jello? This is uh, Jet Miller from Dallas, Texas. I wanted to ask you what your favorite F-18 movie clip is. If you haven't answered that already, mine is the scene from Behind Enemy Lines when, you know, Owen Wilson's in the backseat and he's like, holy blank, we've been painted. That was my favorite one. You know, my granddad, he was actually a backseater in an F-4 in Vietnam and one night in Laos on a night strike mission. Either the pilot, his front seater got shot down and killed, they got shot down, or the pilot just lost it somehow. You know, that probably happens a lot. But, yep, so what's your favorite F-18 movie clip? Thanks. See ya. Well, Jack, this is good timing for this question because I have been on quite a few of these Fighter Pilot Reacts videos lately. One was on Vanity Fair. The second half of that has not yet aired as I'm recording this. And then I had one on Business Insider recently. So when I think of F-18 movies, at least credible ones, I mean, there's The Rock, there's Independence Day, there's Behind Enemy Lines, as you mentioned. Uh, There's even a cameo in Clear and Present Danger, although they use the FRS bird, VFA-125, to do that. All of these movies have some problem, frankly, with the way they're depicting F-18s and military aviation in general. So I'm going to cop out, frankly, and say that I think my favorite F-A-18 movie clip, as you're asking, is probably Tears of the Sun. Now, if you're familiar with that, it's Bruce Willis and some Special Forces guys that basically do a danger close scene. And a couple hero F-18s show up to save the day. Of course, they have the dark visors on, so you can't see who they are because it really doesn't matter. And frankly, they screw up a lot. Uh, If you look behind the head of the pilots, they've got these little wings sticking out of the ejection seat like you might see on an F-16. And then when the guy goes to arm up, he's actually on the right side of the cockpit, which is your spin override switch instead of the left side, which is where your master arm switch is. And then they fire these enormously productive and powerful weapons that just vaporize everything with these ginormous fireballs and they're forward firing. They can shoot two at a time. I don't know what those are supposed to be, but again, they roll in, they save the day. They allow Bruce and his buddies there to have a glorious death, frankly. And of course you got the heroic music and everything else. So I'm going to go with that one. Good question, Jack. Thanks. All right, final email question is from Adam Nurani, who says, are Wizzos, Sizzos, Rios, NFOs, and Navigators all essentially the same, or are there subtle differences between the job descriptions, duties, and airframes they operate on? I've heard some of these terms used interchangeably, and while I only hear other terms used when referencing specific aircraft, such as Rio with the F-4 and F-14, I'm just wondering what's up. Well, so yeah, Adam, actually the term NFO, Naval Flight Officer, is the non-pilot flying officer in military or naval aircraft, I should say. And we had a discussion, one of those happy hours I was telling you about earlier, with an F-15 Strike Eagle 
backseater who turned into an F-16 pilot. And so again, if you jump on our Patreon page, you can hear all about that from his point of view. I'm more familiar with the Navy side of it. And they all go through the basic Naval Flight Officer training. And then they select their platform and then they get their specialized training. So yeah, to your point, in the F-4 and F-14, because the radar was so unwieldy back then, you had a radar intercept officer. And so when you selected those platforms, that was what you became. A Rio is a subset of a naval flight officer. You could also have a Balmadier navigator in an A6, although those are gone. You could have ECMOs in the EA6B Prowler, although those are gone as well. And today you have a WIZO, weapons system officer, in the F-18 Super Hornet. And also in the EA-18G Growler these days, you have the EWO or the Electronic Warfare Officer. So, yep, all of those are different. They are all trained at different FRSs to do different jobs. Generally, like pilots, you'll stick with your platform, although they could, I think, move you around if they needed to. All right, good question. All right, everyone. Well, as you recall, last week, we took a break from our normal programming and replayed a happy hour chat with Mr. Paul Wood, founder of the Warbird Heritage Foundation. Well, he's back this week to help us discuss the F-86 Sabre. How's it going, Paul? Hey, we're doing great, Jello. Uh, having a lot of fun. Yeah. You're one of the few folks to uh, be back in successive episodes here, but uh, I guess last week was an intermission anyway. So anyhow, uh, let's yeah. see. When I talked to you last, I think you were scheduled to go be a part of that big Independence Day flyover in Washington, D.C., but I think I heard something didn't quite go well. How, how did it go overall? Well, I tell you, first of all, I was super honored to be asked to participate in the flyover, and it was a, a great event. People saw it probably on TV with all the various vintages of Warbirds and then mm-hmm. all, all the way up through the modern stuff. And so I was supposed to fly the F-86 in that procession. Normally, our F-86, we have an F model, and it is extremely reliable airplane, and we've flown it quite often in the last few weeks. But it's somewhat range-limited, so I had to fly from Chicago, where the airplane's based, to D.C., for the briefings and all that, but I had to make a fuel stop in Ohio. And so I took off from Chicago. I was flying at 27,000 feet. The plane was just great. I mean, I'm sitting up there just going about 420 knots and it's smooth and the airplane's trimmed out and it's just, I'm, I'm living on top of the world. Come in, land, get gas in Ohio, Zanesville, Ohio. And I get back in, strap in, press the start button, nothing happens. Oh no. <laughs> we did a bunch of troubleshooting. Long story short, Looks like we have a starter generator failure in the airplane. So the plane right now is stuck in a hangar in Ohio, and we're going to have to get our maintenance crew out there to change it. And unfortunately, it's a big job because you have to pull the tail off the airplane, disconnect all the hydraulics, all the flight controls, pull the engine out just to get at the starter generator. So it's going to be quite an ordeal. Yeah, that does not sound like a quick fix. Well, that's a bummer. So, all right. Sorry to hear that. But, you know, we've got this great interview coming up with Skinny on the F-86 who flew it operationally years ago. And you had a chance to listen to the interview in advance. Before we get to it, any thoughts that you had on Skinny and the F-86 that he talked about? Well, the one thought that I had is that he sounded like a great guy. (laughs) He would be a guy I would love to go flying with sometime. I mean, he just... uh, a lot of personality and uh, obviously very knowledgeable about the F-86, the H model in particular, which is a big heavy-duty fighter. So uh, I thought it was a very interesting interview. I thought he was a great guy. I'd love to meet him in person sometime. Well, maybe I can help arrange that. Why don't we let Skinny tell us all about the North American F-86 Sabre? And for you listeners, we'll have a couple audio challenges that we did our best to correct. I know you'll forgive us, but let's get to the interview. Well, this being episode 86, what better aircraft to cover than the F-86 Sabre? And here to help us do that is retired United States Air Force Lieutenant Colonel Jim McLennan, call sign Skinny. How's it going today, sir? Great. (laughs) Good. Well, let's see. Where are you dialing in from today? I happen to be in Southern Oregon. Well, I happen to be in Syracuse, New York, a place called Skinny Atlas Lake. So I'm right on a lake. Oh, that sounds nice. Okay. Well, we've been working at getting this interview for a while. I do appreciate you taking the time right before the 4th of July holiday weekend. We're going to talk all about the F-86 Sabre and its various variants, I guess. Uh, There's some Marine versions, Navy versions, Canada versions, but we'll talk about the ones you flew. But let's start with you, Skinny. Where are you from? Where did you go to school? And give us a brief overview of your career. I went to school at Syracuse University after I got out of pilot training. I was in uh, class 56G, so I graduated in 1956, and then I went on to fly the F-84G at Luke. After that, 
I came back to Syracuse to go to Syracuse University, and I flew the F-94 interceptor and the F-86 at the Air National Guard in Syracuse. And I also flew it in France with USAFI. Then I flew the F-100 in Ohio, Air National Guard, and then came back to Syracuse and flew the F-86 again, and then the A-37, and then I retired out of the A-10. And I was a squadron commander at the boys from Syracuse. Holy smokes, you've really had quite the variety of aircraft. A lot of fun, I'll tell you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, not only that, but you got to stay home for most of it. Now, a lot of people join the military and go all over the place. You spent a lot of time up there in northern New York. I did. Oh, well, I'm guessing you count that as a blessing. I do. Excellent. All right. Well, gosh, we'll have to have you back on the show to talk about some of those other fascinating aircraft, but we'll stick with the F-86 today. And, you know, I have to admit, this is one of those aircraft that I always feel like I should know more about because it seems to be such an iconic aircraft for its era, which I would suggest would be the Korean War. It was. But it's not one I really know that much about. So let's just start at the beginning. What can you tell me about the design of this aircraft? What was it intended to do? My guess is it's a lot like a P-51, but with a jet. That's right. It was. It was built by North American Aviation. They did build a P-51 and also the T-6 in pilot training. It, the big thing about the F-86, it was the first production airplane to feature a swept wing. That enabled it to go faster than the speed of sound. Of course, it had to be in a hell of a dive to do it, but it did it. <laughs> Yeah, I read that uh, it might have been possible someone broke the speed of sound in the F-86 before Chuck Yeager did in his Bell X-1. Yeah, oh, that's not true. (laughs) (laughs) That's why George Welch kind of said he did. But Bob Hoover, who I met, said that did not happen. Chuck Yeager was the first guy to break the speed of sound. Okay, fair enough. Okay, so it's basically an air-to-air dogfighter with guns, at least the initial version. But again, it's got a jet engine instead of a propeller. That's correct. Okay. Now, later variants, as we'll get to in a moment, had other missions. But as far as the F-86 go, as the letter implies, I mean, was there anything particularly good for the aircraft to do? Was it great for dogfighting or was it good for supporting the folks on the ground maybe once they adapted other weapons or what was it best at? Probably air-to-air. Yeah. Air-to-air combat. It was very maneuverable. You could do anything with it. I mean, you could go straight up, straight down and it wouldn't depart control flight. No kidding. It was very, very good airplane. Wow. It sounds like it was very forgiving perhaps. It was. All right, let's touch on some of the variants now. We don't have to cover every variant because people can read about that. But let me ask you this. What variants did you fly, Skinny, and which one did you like the best if you flew more than one? I flew more than one, but the best one was the F-86H, and I had 1,500 hours in that. And that's the one I flew in Europe. It's kind of an interesting thing. The H was the last of the clear air F-86s built, so we called it the last of the sport models. Okay. Now, what made it a clear air? Because it didn't have a radar? or It had a radar gun sight, but it couldn't bind anything in the air. It didn't have a big radar set. The uh, F-86 Dog D and the L had, had airborne radar. They had a big nose on it. Mm-hmm. I always wondered how they did that, because the nose of the aircraft is essentially the intake. It is. Did they just have a little upper lip sort of thing? That's right. But it's not little. It's quite a big dome up there. And down below that is where the intake is for the air for the engine. Gotcha. So you like the H. I read that that was called the Ultimate Saber. It had a bigger engine with about 9,200 pounds of thrust. And, and you said it was quite a joy to fly, was it? Oh, yes. It was very easy to fly. And they were very honest. And uh, the only time you got in trouble, and if you flew too low and hit the ground, <laughs> that'd do it every time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you can only tie the record for flying the lowest, I'm told. Well, later models, as I read, were upgraded with, I think the K model was adapted for the Sidewinder missile. It was. And then there were some that rockets were adapted, and I couldn't quite tell if the rockets were for, because I think they employed rockets in World War II against bombers, but I couldn't tell if these were air-to-air rockets or air-to-surface. No, these air-to-surface rockets that we carried. Okay. If you're going into combat, they were five-inch, because we flew with with a smaller rocket for uh, just for gunnery, air-to-ground gunnery. Practice, okay. Uh, Maybe a 2.75. Yeah. Okay. And then was there later a model adapted for the nuclear role? 
Uh, actually, the H could carry it, and the F could carry a nuclear warhead. No kidding. It couldn't carry much else. <laughs> <laughs> no, I can imagine. When I was in Europe, the uh, nuclear role fell to the F-100s. Okay. And we didn't carry nukes at all. We just carried conventional 750-pound bombs. Well, from what I've heard from past guests on this show, it sounds like you dodged a bullet, so to speak, because that was quite a difficult mission, I would say, to not only have to all the qualifications, but then you had to plan for certain targets. And then, of course, there was endless inspections to make sure you were doing it right. Correct. It was a lot better flying the H than flying the F-100. <laughs> oh, I can imagine. All right. Well, let's see. Where has this aircraft been proliferated? By my count, something like 37 countries? Yeah, 37 countries flew the F-86, plus the Marine Corps, the Air Force, and the United States Navy. Now, that is something I didn't know until preparing for this, because the FJ-2 and 3 Fury, I guess, is basically a navalized F-86, but I guess it didn't really get very far. No, it didn't. Actually, the uh, FJ-4 was probably the best of all of them, but that was the last one. And it was uh, supposed to be an air superiority airplane to protect the carriers. But I think what it wound, the B model wound up carrying bullpup missiles, and it could carry like six of them. And that was a guided missile with a little joystick in the cockpit, and you could maneuver it. I never flew it, so I don't know much about it. Mm-hmm. Well, we had that on, I forget what show it was, but apparently there was a little flare that burned on the back of it. And when you launched it, you were supposed to basically guide it, like you said, to the target while also flying your own airplane. So that just sounds <laughs> diabolical. <laughs> I don't want to try that. No. Oh, goodness. The naval version didn't last very long, but of course it had the beefed up landing gear and an arresting hook and folding wings so it could park closer right. and more aircraft on the flight deck and all that. Okay. Bob Hoover was the one that test flew that on carriers, and they had a hell of a time landing it on a carrier. And finally, <laughs> Dr. Carey Project said, you got to smash this thing into the deck. So the next time he came around, he smashed it into the deck, and both wheels came off the hubs and rolled off the carrier. <laughs> but he said, I didn't roll off the carrier. <laughs> yeah. We should do a show on Bob Hoover. He's a legend. He- yeah, he's a great guy. Yeah, he went on to do some really amazing air shows. I would count myself fortunate to see him perform in the Air Commander, I think it was, the twin engine. Anyway, all right. So, yeah, golly, like you said, all these different countries. I mean, just to rattle off a couple, Argentina, Australia, Burma, Canada, Denmark, Philippines, some countries, frankly, that maybe we were sad later we sold them to, although they might have been gone by then. (laughs) Iran, Iraq, let's see, Thailand, Turkey, the United Kingdom, Venezuela. So this thing really got around. I would say 10,000 of them almost made in all its different variants. Just to compare it with something, the F-100 came out after the 86, of course, and only four countries bought that one, and they were all used airplanes. They were ex-Air Force aircraft. So nobody (laughs) ever built it. But they actually built the uh, Sabre in Canada and also in Australia. Yeah. Yeah, I believe it was license built in Canada by Canadair. And I guess they called it the CL-13 Sabre. Yes. Okay. And then they had the different Mark versions uh, similar to our Lutter suffixes. Most people say the Mark VI was the best F-86 that was ever built. And that was Canada. Oh, really? Yeah. Interesting. Well, why did it look the way it did? There's a, some story about the first version with a straight wing and then the swept wing, but it's got, I would say, a very iconic shape. It does. Actually, the first version was the FJ-1, which was a Navy aircraft, and they only built a few of them. And then North American decided to sweep the wings and add about 100 knots to the airspeed without an increase in uh, propulsion. That's Impressive. And then, of course, later variants had more propulsion from improved engines. They did. But the most propulsion of any 86 was the H. It had about a little over 9,000 pounds of thrust. Mm, That must have been impressive. Now, one of the advantages attributed to the F-86, at least against the MiG-15 in the Korean War, was its bubble canopy. Did it have pretty good visibility when you sat in it? Excellent visibility. The cockpit was forward and relatively high. And you could see around the clock easily, where the MiG didn't have quite the visibility that the 86 had because it had a thicker plexiglass and couldn't see out of it as well as you could out of the 86. Hmm. 
Yeah, those who are a student of Air Force history know that John Boyd, who flew the F-86, is that's where he came up with his OODA loop, the observe, orient, decide, and act. Part of the advantage that he felt, because when you compared the MiG-15 and the F-86, it, in some ways, the MiG-15 had the advantage. It did. But he felt that the observe part of the bubble canopy really gave the F-86 pilots an advantage. Yes, that's true as well as the all-moving tail, I guess, for the act part of it because of its maneuverability. Did you find the flying it, again, was it heavy on the controls? Was it fairly light? What was it like to actually fly? Very, very light. In fact, uh, pilots, when you checked them out, had a tendency to wobble all over the sky until they got used to the boosted controls. Oh, I don't doubt that. Now, I read it could go up to about 48,000 feet and could go almost supersonic. What was the highest and fastest you ever flew in, Jim? It's about 48,000 feet. I tried to get to 50, and I never got there. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. How fast did you have one? Well, in a dive, it would go Mach 1, but just barely. Okay. You could go Mach 1 with tanks on it, so in in EH. Oh, wow. You could just see speed sound, but you only did that once or twice because you had to climb above 40,000 feet and dive straight down. And if you weren't (laughs) supersonic by 30,000 feet, forget it, because you got down denser air. Yeah. Was that something like all the young pilots? Of course, you know, these days, most fighters can go through the supersonic barrier, if you will, without many issues. But was that something in your generation, everybody had to go do it just to say they did? Yes. When you checked out the airplane, I think the third or fourth ride, you had to go supersonic. Oh, they made you do it as part of the syllabus. Yes. And a big thing was you had to climb up to 40,000 feet and dive. And I used to tell, I was an instructor in in the 86 and checking guys out. And the interesting thing was I said, you got to point it straight down and and just hammer the throttle at 100% and go down and do it the first time. Because we don't do it the first time, I got to climb back to 40,000 feet and do it all (laughs) over again. Oh, dear. Speaking of that, just getting back to variants very quickly, were there two-seat variants, or did a, a student get in for the first time solo? The first time solo. Oh, wow. It was an easy airplane to fly. Probably the easiest jet I ever flew in my life. Oh, wow. Really? They did build a couple of two-seaters. One of them, I know, crashed and killed some people. Uh-oh. Uh, the other one, I don't know what happened to the second one they built, but they never did buy the two-seater. But they did buy a two-seat F-100 because the F-100 was a very, very dangerous airplane. Mm. Yeah, I did read a little bit about that. And we're hoping to cover some of those Century Series aircraft when we get to the appropriate numbered episodes for fun. (laughs) Okay. It was designed to fly fast in that treetop level, carrying 24 nuclear weapons. Today, it bristles with smart bombs and guided missiles. The B-1 bomber, called the bone by those who fly and maintain it, is the most heavily armed bomber ever built. Sleek and powerful, the bone remains a mainstay of American air power 50 years after its first flight. Hey everyone, this is Ken Katz, call sign Primetime. And my book, The Supersonic Bone, A Development and Operational History of the B-1 Bomber, tells the true story of this magnificent airplane. In this book, you'll read stories told to me by those who were there and see lots of great photos of the bone. Anyone with an interest in modern military aircraft will enjoy reading The Supersonic Bone. Available through the usual online retailers and aviation booksellers. Pick up your copy today. Pulling G's, was it a high G aircraft or not very many? Or what was the most you ever pulled? It was guaranteed up to 7.33 G's Okay, without tanks. If you had tanks on, then you were limited to 6 G's. A friend of mine that I flew with, uh, he put 14 G's on one. Holy smokes. too close to the ground. He hanged back on it, put 14 G's. It didn't come unglued. There was no damage to the aircraft. You're kidding. Wow. That's what I was going to ask you, is it whether the plane ever flew again? Oh, yeah, it flew. <laughs> How about the pilot? Did he fly again? Yeah, he did. He did. <laughs> okay. Well, better to uh, overstress the aircraft than to crash and, of course, That's right. be killed. Oh, dear me. All right. So how about at low altitude? Was it pretty fast as well? I mean, next to the ground is when you can... Of course, it wouldn't go supersonic in straight and level flight. So the Century Series would all do that. Yeah. 
Now, what about the armament? I mean, again, the early version was basically just a good old gunslinger, but uh, let's start with the guns, though. What did it have, and did it ever change? It had 650s, and the H was the first one to have four 20-millimeter cannons, and that's what I flew. And the Navy also had cannons in theirs. There's Furies. Okay. They put cannons in there. It's a 20 millimeter cannons. Were they like a single barrel type of yes. arrangement or were a Gatling gun? No, they weren't Gatling guns. They were a single barrel. Okay. There was one, a single barrel. The Australians had a 37 millimeter cannon in theirs, and they only had two of them, though. Goodness. What was the point of that one? Was that for air to ground? They did use it a lot for air to ground in melee, I think, is where they were using it. Okay. That's quite a sized round. Yeah. All right. How many rounds would you carry? Was it sufficient for several bursts, or was it pretty limited? We carried only 100 rounds and two guns when we did air-to-air or air-to-ground. But you could carry, I think, around 150 rounds or 200 rounds per gun. Mm -hmm. Was it a high rate of fire? I'm guessing with a single barrel, not that high. At 1,500 rounds a minute with one barrel. Oh, wow. That's not too bad, actually. Yeah, 6,000 rounds you throw out there. Okay. All four of them firing. And then later on, as we talked about, the AIM-9, the Sidewinder, and then rockets, and then different bombs. Did you ever have a chance to employ any air-to-ground weapons in the aircraft? Well, air-to-ground, we just used uh, 25-pound practice bombs. And I dropped heavyweights and regular 750-pound bombs a few times. Okay. And uh, the guns, of course, we had the 450s, which I told you about I never flew it with a Sidewinder, but the H could carry a Sidewinder, the F could carry a Sidewinder, the AIM-9. Mm-hmm. Of course, later on, anybody could carry a Sidewinder. That's <laughs> <laughs> right, everybody. What was it as far as a bombing platform? Was it stable and accurate, or was it a challenge? Well, it wasn't as stable as an F-84. The F-84 I flew was more stable, and you could. Okay. Uh, it was easier to drop bombs with, but the H was okay. Well, I suppose if you have a big enough bomb, you just have to get it in the vicinity, (laughs) especially the nuclear role. Did they ever talk much about that? Did you have friends that had to do that role? Because, for example, on the A4 Skyhawk episode, it was pretty well understood that your mission was probably one way. But because by the time you dropped it, it was probably going to detonate before you could get out of there. Was was the F-86 understood to have some more uh, bring back, if you will? The biggest problem with the nuke, mission was that you had to stand a lot of alert and you didn't fly with the nuke you weren't going to take off unless it was war because it wouldn't let you go fly around in the airspace with a nuclear weapon under your wing right so those guys didn't like that mission most fighter pilots hated it just because you're sitting in the alert shack 90 percent of your career waiting to go and you don't want to go <laughs> you don't want to go no Well, it's an interesting world uh, that existed back then during the Cold War. And and I read that, uh, and I think we talked about it on the B-52 episode, that unlike what you just described, there were B-52s flying, I think, 24 hours a day that were armed. And that just boggles my mind. In fact, an Air National Guard unit on Tucson, uh, they shot down a (laughs) B-52 by mistake. Oh. Somehow, it wasn't actually an AIM-9 got shot down with it. Really? And it was an F-100 that did the shooting. The joke was in the guard, Air Guard 1, sack nothing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, was it uh, clearly a mistake? Did the crew of the B-52 get out? They did. I think they all survived. They all jumped and got out of there or ejected out of there. And they found out that it was some kind of wiring problem with the uh, AIM-9. Oh, okay. It just blew uh, a little gus. Anyway, okay. Well, that's crazy. I've never heard of that. I'll have to look into that one. Yeah. Well, we talked about the armament and the performance. We're just getting right through all this, Jim. How about strengths and weaknesses? Now, we talked about the bubble canopy. What else would you call, when you think back to your time flying the F-86, what were some of the features of it that you enjoyed the best? Well, I think the maneuverability was the best thing, and the fact that it wouldn't depart control flight. The F-100 would depart control flight, and once it departed, you had to eject because you're not going to get out of it. No kidding. And they had that saber dance, uh, they called it. It was adverse yaw, and uh, if the airplane wanted to go left and you wanted to go right, the airplane always won. <laughs> you're just along for the ride. I think they lost about a third of the airplanes, F-100s, in accidents just an accident killed a lot of people yeah 
No, I do remember reading about that. So if you had an F-86, Jim, and you're going to fly and you're going to pull straight up until you stall, I mean, obviously you have concerns with your engine at that point, but so you're saying even out of that, you can do okay? Like that was a prohibited maneuver in an F-18. Yeah, no, you could go straight up and what would happen was it all of a sudden you'd be going sliding back down at about 6,000 feet per minute, but your nose would be still up in the air. No kidding. <laughs> so all you do is do drop the nose down, get some airspeed, and just pull back up and get back into the fight. And the engine didn't mind that? No. The F-100 did. The F-100 would compressor stall to beat the band. <laughs> and pull your feet right off the rudder pedal. Scare the hell out of you. Oh, my heavens. Yeah, I can imagine so. All right. So good visibility, a joy to fly, maneuverable, stall resistant, if you will. Maybe that's not the right word because it would stall like any aircraft, but it was very forgiving. Was there anything that you wished they would have fixed or just some quirk about the F-86 that always bothered you? Some weakness? None. Some of the guys would tell you that, well, it didn't have mid-air refueling. But an hour and a half in an airplane is enough. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's funny you mentioned that, Jim. I was just the other day had a conversation with Rico Rodriguez. He's an Air Force F-15 pilot yeah. who had three kills in Eagles, unlike the Top Gun Maverick trailer that said Maverick was the only guy with three kills in the last 30 <laughs> years. Uh, Rico has them. Anyway, he said that he flew an Eagle from the States directly to Saudi Arabia for the Desert Storm War, and he was in the aircraft something like 20 hours. Yeah. Can you imagine? I flew an A-10 14 hours. Oh, heavens, God. In Germany. You know, the old gaggle of us. And that was a long haul, man. I didn't <laughs> want to ever do that again. <laughs> well, our A-10 guest said you guys had to go across fairly low, and of course, you're relatively slow in the first place. That's right. You always followed. The tankers stayed with us all the time. Mm -hmm. We did all the navigating and all that, and we just sat there and got bored to death. <laughs> they made you refuel every 30 minutes so you'd be topped off all the time right well also keeps you awake oh gosh that was fun though because refueling at least you got to do something <laughs> right? yeah that's true that's true well yep. where would the listening audience here have seen the f-86 and now again for those of us who are interested in military aviation it's pretty well known up there with the p-51 and f-16 i would say but was it ever in any movies was there a demonstration squadron that flew the f-86 yeah there are several demonstration counters that flew it of course the, the thunderbirds never flew it but the uh, canadians the hawks they call them they flew it and the Air Force flew it in Europe in the Sky Blazers. They used it. Oh. As far as movies are concerned, a movie called The Hunters, a Korean War movie, was very, very good flying. And that, and the other one has some good air to air in it is Jet Pilot, but it's a terrible freaking movie. <laughs> oh, yeah. Except for two minutes of F-86 time in it. That's ah. pretty good stuff. Well, we can just put it on mute and watch it maybe, but right, uh, right. okay. <laughs> yeah. Hunters, I think I've read a book of a similar title based on F-86 Korean. Okay. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't realize that it had been adapted for a movie. Interesting. Okay. Well, so 1500 hours you said in the H was that, so how many total in the F-86? Well, I, I flew the uh, F in Saudi Arabia for about a month, maybe a little longer than a month. And that's the only one I flew. I got one ride in a Mark V, a Canadian bird. Okay. All my time was really in the H. Okay. How many flight hours total in the military? 4,000. Oh, heavens. Golly. <laughs> All right. Well, so anyway, thinking about the 1,500 plus yeah. in the F-86, is there one mission or one occurrence that really sticks out with you, Skinny? Yeah. I was up boring holes, and I remembered my uncle saying he wanted to fly by. He owned a farm out in west of syracuse and so uh -oh. i was thinking ah i'll go and see if i first of all can i find the damn farm <laughs> so i found it and then the second thing i had to think about was is anybody there and i looked in the north 40 and there were a bunch of people you know i was pretty high and i could see people down there though and so i said wow i guess i can give them a little flyby so i got down dove down got on top of the trees as I came off the trees into the farmyard where they were picking tomatoes, I got down to about 15 feet and roared right over and pulled straight up. And I looked in the mirror and all these guys are running, <laughs> running off the field. <laughs> so that, after that, 
my uncle called me that night at home and said, no more flybys. He said, <laughs> they wouldn't go back to work. <laughs> I can imagine if you're just sitting there peacefully picking tomatoes and all of a sudden it's like a bomb goes off because while well, you can hear yourself, they don't hear you coming. Yeah, they hear me coming. <laughs> That was really funny. <laughs> oh, well, you didn't have to pull any tomato branches out of your airplane, I hope. No, I didn't. That was 15 feet. That was pretty high. <laughs> yeah, golly, 15 feet. Well, that's a single engine aircraft. I, I, I have to ask, and I hate to, but do your number of takeoffs equal your number of landings? They do. Although on one landing, I did run off the runway and smash it all to hell. But. Oh, was that due to, uh, let's blame it on rain, or what can we uh, fault for that one? I had a utility system failure, which runs the brakes. And it's supposed to trap fluid in your brake system, but mine didn't. And so when I clamped on the brakes, they didn't work. And off I went. Oh. And kind of went off the side of the runway first. And their fire engines were parked there because they had an emergency. It was Volk Field in Wisconsin. The <laughs> fire truck backed up pretty quick. <laughs> <That was fun. laughs> Yeah, he didn't want you creating an emergency for him. That's right. <laughs> oh, dear. But the next day, the interesting, of course, I, I was grounded and all that, so they could do an investigation. And it was a major aircraft accident. And so the next day, I'm in operations, and I'm just sitting there. Green, we call it the green chair because I did something wrong. Mm-hmm. And uh, I looked out the other room, and this huge column of smoke is going up. I said, I think I'm out of the green chair. (laughs) (laughs) We burned one up on the end of the field. Oh, dear. And my wing commander didn't want to have two accidents and one, two right in a row. So mine became an incident. (laughs) (laughs) And the other one was burned up. And it took them a year to repair my airplane, but they finally got it and it did fly. Oh, wow. Were they pretty durable or was it a little bit fragile? No, it was pretty durable. I forgot to ask you this earlier. I honestly don't know. Did the F-86, was it equipped with an ejection seat or did you? They all had ejection seats. Yeah. I think at that point with jets as fast as they go, bailing out probably wasn't real likely. The only problem with the aircraft that I flew at the time, you had to be airborne. I think it's 200 feet and 200 knots or something like that to eject. Mm -hmm. Now you can eject on the ramp with these uh, new ACES seats. Yeah, they call it zero, zero, zero speed, zero altitude. And theoretically, you can eject from uh, sitting still and you'll get at least one swing in the chute. But yes, in the old days, you needed a little bit of velocity. You did. And altitude in that case. And altitude, right. I'm guessing, did you have friends who tried out the seat and did it work out? Yeah, it worked every time. Oh, good. By not being able to get out of the seat. Well, so you said at the beginning that you deployed to Europe. Was that part of uh, NATO or some of the Cold War stuff? Or what what was that about? It was 61, 62, they activated three uh, Air National Guard F-86 units to go. One was Syracuse, which I was in, mm-hmm. one was Boston, and one was Westfield in Massachusetts. We took 70 F-86s across the North Atlantic, island hopping, you know, from Labrador to Greenland to Iceland to Scotland and then into France. Because you couldn't refuel, aerial refuel anyway, Okay. An hour and a half, and we were done. Then we went to the bar. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So uh, was it a trail of tears, or did everybody make it? I mean, sometimes when you do island hopping like that, you leave somebody almost every stop. No, we all made it. Oh, good. One of the things, maintenance in the guard was terrific. Oh. Guys knew what they were doing. And then, so once you got on your deployment, which doesn't sound too bad coming from me as a carrier guy, when you're on the ship, then you're kind of tied up on the ship. But if you're somewhere in Europe, it sounds like you can probably go enjoy yourself when you're on Liberty. We did. Well, we, we drank a lot of beer. <laughs> I remember that we had, we had a club, of course, an officer's club. We went there mm-hmm. almost every night because nothing else to do. And we were, we were unaccompanied. Our wives couldn't be there with us and families couldn't go with us, so. Mm-hmm. We had a hell of a lot of fun. What were your missions like? Were you patrolling or mostly just training, but you were there in case something happened? We were just there in case something happened, but nothing ever happened. So we spent most of our time fighting the Canadians. They were 25 miles away with 70 Mark Six eighty sixes, and we had, of course, 70 of us. And all we did was get airborne, suck the gear in the well, and pop up on top, 
and fight the Canadians, and they always won. I'll tell you, they beat the hell out of us. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> that uh, Mark 6 had a better thrust-to-weight ratio than we did because of a smaller airplane, and it had a smaller engine in it, but it was a better thruster-weight than we had. Mm-hmm. Jim, when I think of the F-86, I think of the very bright, shiny, silver uh, finish that they had. Was that always the case? No, when Vietnam came along, we flew them until 70. Okay. Vietnam came along, the Air Force camouflaged everything. Uh, You know, ground vehicles, everything. Somebody made a lot of money off that paint, I'll tell you that. (laughs) Yeah, well, they probably charged the government too much. But I guess my point was going to be when you're swirling around with the Canadians, if they were painted the same, was it relatively easy to spot one another? Yeah, you could tell the Canadians. (laughs) First of all, the airplane was smaller than the H, and so a little smaller. Smaller and more powerful. That is a deadly combination. Yeah, and they were camouflaged, and we weren't. We were silver, and so easy to tell apart and. You could always look in your mirror and find them. They're right behind you. <laughs> if you wanted to know where the Canadians were. Well, hey, at least you can isolate your lookout to just one spot. But, yeah, that doesn't usually work too well. They're right there. Uh, and the only mission they had was air-to-air. They didn't do any air-to-ground like we did. Ah, air and air-to-ground. So they could focus on getting as good at that as possible. They were terrific, I'll tell you. They okay. were the best. What were they doing? Were they also there deployed for... NATO? Yeah, they were there. There were three Canadian bases. Solingen was one. I think uh, Grotanken was the one we were always running. And there's another one over in Germany. I can't remember the name of it now, but okay. they're all flying Mark 6s. It sounds like you really had an affinity for the F-86 and enjoyed your time flying it. I loved it. <laughs> That's years of my life. Uh, That's good to hear, Jim. So I think you said before we started rolling the tape, you ended up in service for over 30 years? Yeah, well, most of it in the Guard. Guard, sure. When we went on active duty, they used to say we were the Christmas help. (laughs) (laughs) And that time I got activated with the 86, I went to uh, Cannon Air Force Base in New Mexico. That's a bit different than Syracuse. Yes. Yeah, it was a regular Air Force base, F-100 base. Mm. And there were two squadrons there of 86s. One was from uh, Baltimore and Syracuse Guard. Okay. Were you pretty much a full-time Guard guy, or did you do something else like fly for the airlines or anything? No, I didn't. I worked for the airlines, but I was in management with the airlines. I was rep with them, KLM Royal Dutch Airlines. Oh, cool. So do you do any flying now, Jim? No, I don't. I flew Piper Cup for a while. A friend of mine has a L-4. And we flew around, but he sold it, so I don't do anything now. Okay. I just sit out here on that deck and drink beer. (laughs) That's my job. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that doesn't sound like a bad life, especially if you're near a lake. It sounds like you've certainly enjoyed it. I thank you for your service and your 4,000 flight hours and your 40 minutes with me today. This has been a lot of fun. Okay. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Well, hold on. Before you go, Jim, we have a little tradition here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast. We always have to know how someone, if they have a nickname or a call sign, how they got it. So I don't know what you look like. Maybe I could answer this myself, but how did someone come up with skinny for Jim McLennan? Well, I called a guy in the squadron, a fat son of a one day, and and uh, he called me skinny. The fat didn't stick, but skinny stuck. <laughs> <laughs> that was before call signs. Uh-huh. That became my call sign. Uh, does it fit, or is it? Are you six foot five and two hundred fifty no, pounds, built like a lineman? At five eight, and I weigh about one hundred fifty pounds, so it fits. <laughs> There's a funny call sign story. A friend of mine uh, came in the squadron, and uh, he wanted to be called Eagle. So okay, Eagle. So he was on my wing, and we were going up to the range to drop some bombs. I give the line up to the range officer. And I had a skinny eagle and two other guys. I can't remember what their call signs were. And he came back and he says, is that eagle or beagle? That's <laughs> 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 beagle now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. It's always dangerous to try to give yourself a cool call sign. It usually backfires. Usually always does. <laughs> This has been great, Jim. I really appreciate it. I used to fly into Syracuse in my airline capacity. Really? I haven't been through there in a long time. Plus, I switched airplanes. And, of course, now with all this COVID 
uh, craziness going on. Uh, we're, you know, we're not flying very much at all, but if I ever make it in there, I'll be sure to come look for you on your rocking chair and in a cold beer. <laughs> I'll do that. I'll f- Thanks so much for your time today. You're welcome. Well, that was a lot of fun, and I want to thank Victor DeSanto, who's one of our listeners who provided the information to help me prepare for that interview. A great team really makes all the difference, as you know, Paul. Paul Skinny was (laughs) quite the character. I was laughing quite a bit. Uh, What did you think? Yeah, no, he's he's a great guy. And, you know, some of the uh, stories uh, of him flying with the guard and some of those uh, low levels and things, I thought was pretty hilarious. I mean, he obviously knows the airplane really well. And I don't know how many squadrons of H models they really had. I mean, obviously, you know, most of the F-86s were E's and F's during the Korean era. Uh, you know, the H's came on later on and didn't really see a lot of action anywhere, certainly not in Korea. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, obviously, they didn't fly them in Vietnam. So interesting uh, to hear his perspective on it flying in the guard. No doubt. Well, and on that note with the stories, I did find one about the 1961 B-52 shoot down. That was unfortunate, of course, but we'll link to that in the show notes. And then when I was trying to say it just blew and couldn't think of Gus Grissom, of course, that's the astronaut who was made popular in the movie, right stuff. So you said earlier, the one you have is an F model and he really liked the H model. Can you remind us of the differences as far as obviously yours is, I guess, just a little earlier. Sure. They had several models. They made about 10,000 different airplanes of different models, the A through the H. Each one of them had quite a few differences. The A model, I've actually flown the A model, the F model, and a Canada Air Mark VI. Oh, wow. So I've flown like the very first version of the F-86 and one of the latest versions that were made by uh, the Canadians. So, And they're very different. The A model had a 5,200-pound thrust engine, had a, a swept wing with no slats, and it had hydraulically boosted controls with manual reversion, did not have the flying tail. So it had a horizontal stabilizer and an elevator. Okay. And you move on to the later E's and F's. My F model has 6,000 pounds of thrust. It has a uh, leading edge slats, uh, which are very helpful in terms of slow speed flying characteristics. And it also has what's called a flying tail, which really helped in the high transonic and supersonic sort of speed regime where the horizontal stabilizer with an elevator made it difficult to get past about 0.9 Mach or so. You get in that transonic area and it made it hard. And then the H model, which is the latest model that Skinny flew, it's a really different airplane. They didn't take just the regular F-86 fuselage and stick a 9,000-pound thrust engine in it. In order to accommodate the size of that engine, they had to expand the fuselage. So they actually slipped the fuselage down the center line and added six inches in width and then they uh, added about two feet to the length. And oh. they did that to accommodate this larger 9,000-pound thrust engine. If you look at an H model also, the inlet is very different from a typical F-86. It's much bigger and much squarer to allow for more airflow going through the compressor section of the engine. But having said all that, they kept the same F-86F wing. So they have a bigger thrust engine and a bigger fuselage with the same wing. So what they gained in thrust, they kind of lost it in top speed. They only got a marginal improvement in the top speed of the airplane, even with the higher thrust. But obviously, initial climb rates were way much better because of the extra thrust. I'll tell you, there's a big difference between flying an F-86 with 5,200 pounds of thrust and the Canada Air Mark VI, which I've flown, which has 7,200 pounds of thrust. Mm-hmm. And they're like night and day airplanes. So I can imagine the H model you know, on takeoff and initial climb with 9,000 pounds of thrust on that airplane would have been a real hoot to fly. Oh, I imagine. Yeah, that sounds like a lot of fun. Well, so he had his up to 48,000 Mach 1. What have you seen in your F? I got scared at (laughs) (laughs) 0.9. I got up to about 0.9, and I was relatively low altitude. Uh, I was below 18,000 feet, so Mm. I've had it up to 27, 28,000 feet. My airplane is not what's called RVSM. Right. certified. So I have to stay below 28,000 feet. And it does great at that altitude. Uh, very easy cruise. Yeah. Uh, I was doing 420 knots at 88% power. So I wasn't, I was just really light on the throttle and it was moving yeah. along really well. Nice. But if you push the nose over and go full power, you get up there, it accelerates very quickly. 
it goes downhill very fast. And <laughs> so I, I rolled it over at 18,000 feet and I got to about 0.9 and the air rush over the canopy was starting to get pretty loud. <laughs> so I, I sort of pulled it back. I thought, okay, that's enough for me. <laughs> yeah. And it's yours, not Uncle Sam's. So uh, yeah, I can understand that. Uh, did you uh, agree though with Skinny's assessment of the cockpit visibility and just the delightful and forgiving handling of the oh. 86? I tell you, the cockpit with the bubble canopy, you can literally see 360 degrees. The visibility is absolutely spectacular. The other thing is this airplane, for some reason, it's so well harmonized in terms of the ailerons and the elevator and all that, and you can trim it up. There's some airplanes I've flown where you're doing a cross-country and you're constantly trimming one click down, one click up, trying to find that sweet spot where the airplane will just stay in one spot. Like the A4 is that way. You can't find a trim position where the airplane will just stay where it is. Mm. The F-86, that thing is it's so well harmonized that you trim it up and you can fly hands-free and it's almost like it's on autopilot. It's so wow. stable. You know, it's got a good roll rate and uh, it uh, zooms really well. And when you point the nose down, it goes fast. Wow, that sounds like a lot of fun. You know, Skinny talked about Bob Hoover, who yeah. is one of these unsung heroes, uh, except for the people who really follow air shows and some of the things, not as well known as Chuck Yeager and all that. But you did some air shows, you said. Did you ever cross paths with Bob Hoover? And it was the Twin Commander, I couldn't think of his aircraft. Twin, but, yep, yeah, yeah. I, I never did air shows with Bob. He was doing air shows mostly before I was doing a lot of the air shows. However, I did get to know him. I actually got to know him quite well. I spent a lot of time with them over the years. It started out at Oshkosh. We were doing a tribute to Bob Hoover, and he was famous for doing four different demos. He did the Twin Commander. He did the Mustang, Old Yeller. He did the F-86, and he did a Sabre liner. So that was like a corporate jet. Mm-hmm. So at Oshkosh, we did a tribute to him. So we had a Commander, a Mustang. I flew the F-86, and we had another guy flew the Sabre liner and we did a four ship echelon pass and a little four ship routine at Oshkosh in honor of Bob Hoover. So I, that was the first time I got to meet him. And since that time, I was able to spend a fair amount of time with him. The last time I spent time with him, uh, he was being honored down at Maxwell Air Force Base. Uh, it was being honored as an Eagle, they call him. Uh-huh. And that's the Air War College down at Maxwell. And they asked me if I would come down, bring the F-86 down and, and be Bob's sort of, not escort, but his associate or partner through this whole three-day process. So we spent about three days together. And one of the things that was really interesting is by this time, he was pretty old. He was in a wheelchair. One of the nicest guys you're ever going to want to meet in your life. And we could go on and tell stories about how cool of a guy he was. But one of the things he did is I said, Bob, you know, I brought my F-86 down, sitting on the ramp on display. Can we take some time and just, would you like to go look at it? He said, yeah, you know, he's got the high southern voice. Yeah, Paul, that would be just fine. I'd like to do that. He got out of his wheelchair, and we started at the nose of the airplane, and he started talking about all of the things that they learned about the airplane when they were doing all the test flights and where they were trying to figure out how to put more fuel in the airplane. And if we moved the guns over here or did this, they could put a different saddle fuel bag in the sides and all this kind of stuff. We literally went all the way around and he was telling stories about how he was, when he was test flying the airplane, how he, you know, lost hydraulic controls and this, all these famous stories that he's, people have probably heard about or read about in his book. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then at the end, I pulled off one of the panels and gave him a Sharpie and he signed the airplane for me and all the whole bit. And oh, it, was, cool. it was pretty cool. Yeah. He was a great, great guy. Oh, yeah, indeed. Yeah, he passed away back in October of 2016, but I can remember as a kid seeing him do his Twin Commander air show routine, and I think part of it was he would shut off both engines, uh, yes, which just did. seems crazy. Uh, and do and still do some maneuvers. Yeah, exactly. And still do some maneuvers, but he was one of the rare few that really knew what he was, just how to put on an amazing show and, and just yeah. flying at a different level. So yeah, awesome. All right. Well, gosh, you know, like I said with Skinny, I just learned so much about the F-86 between his interview and your discussion. Any other thoughts on flying or maintaining that aircraft here before we move on? Well, I mean, we're sort of in the middle of changing this uh, starter generator out right now. The one thing I will say as older vintage airplanes compared to more modern airplanes, when they designed the vintage airplanes, they really weren't thinking so much about ease of maintenance and things like Mm -hmm. that. And in order to change a starter generator on our F-86, we have to pull the tail off, 
which means we have to disconnect all the flight controls, all the hydraulics, the wiring for the antennas, all that kind of stuff, pull the end to the tail all the way back, and then get a crane with an engine stand, disconnect the engine, pull the engine out from the main part of the fuselage just to get at the starter generator. <laughs> and, you know, today, in the, today's world, you know, in a Hornet or someplace like that, or even our T2 Buckeye, there's engine bay doors. You just drop them. You drop a few bolts. The engine pops right down. You get right at it, and you can change things very easily. So they didn't really think about in their design, you know, maintenance-type issues nearly as much as they do today. So that's yeah. one of the challenges of the older-style vintage warbirds, I think. Yeah, no, I can imagine so. And I think that's partly what doomed the F-14. Even by F-86 standards, it was probably a little better. But by modern standards, as you said, it was just becoming so difficult every time something little breaks. And frankly, things do break. Yeah, they do. <laughs> painfully aware, but uh, those of us who spend time in the military, it's the same thing. Not uncommon. Awesome. Well, thanks for helping add some interesting uh, nuggets to that, Paul. And as we transition here to the wrap-up, I want to thank, we have a whole squadron full of new Patreon supporters this week. That includes Strike Leads, Luke Burton, Dave Tongi, Michael Tiener, Nicholas Griffith, Carson Chambers, Sean Sterling, Robert Schwab, Jeff Meisenhausen, and Mission Commanders Nigel Creel, Dr. Noel Rodriguez, Jeanette Benoit, someone called Airbus Driver, Daniel Hassett, and Nicholas Butta, and finally Airbosses, which are the highest tier, Kevin Flynn, Gordon Bradbury, Sean Carr. I am so thankful for these supporters, and especially in light of my future situation, and they really do help keep the show going, and that's awesome. So thanks so much, Patreon supporters. Well, the views expressed in this presentation are the personal views of myself and my guests and do not necessarily represent the position of the Department of Defense or its components. So that'll do it for this week. Paul, thanks again for stopping by to the Fighter Pilot Podcast to help us understand the awesome F-86 Sabre. My pleasure, Jell. A lot of fun. Let's do it again. Oh, for sure. All right. And for the rest of you, we'll be taking another break again next week. We'll replay another happy hour interview as we get ready for August, which will be Army Aviation Month. That's right. We're long overdue giving some love to the deserving guys and gals in green. So we've got a whole month set aside just for them. Until then, have a great week. Stay safe out there. And we'll see you all here next time on the Fighter Pilot Podcast. So long. You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, brought to you by BVR Productions. Got a question for the show? Send an email to questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com or leave a message on our listener line at 877-MACH-101. That's 877-622-4101. Be sure to check out our website at fighterpilotpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. For exclusive Fighter Pilot Podcast content, check out our Patreon page. Please like, follow, and subscribe to the show. And don't forget to share us with your network. Thank you for listening. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.